human excrement is a weird way to start a podcast, but to me, this is just a, a fascinating story because it, it's not just about Maine's municipal waste management system. It really, it's a story that hasn't gotten enough attention, attention for one, but it's also a story that reveals this dynamic in Augusta that's very common and that the people I think suffer from, which is lawmakers who don't know what they're doing, don't know what they're playing with, and they break it and later don't want to admit that they're wrong. Unintended consequences. Yes, correct. The unintended consequences of, of well-meaning policy. Um, so I'm here with Representative Mike uh, Soboleski. He's a Republican from Phillips out in Franklin County, and uh, he's been neck deep in, in human sludge for the last couple of months. Um, and really, I think the best way to describe it is cleaning up mistakes that were made in the previous legislature, predictable mistakes, uh, that were pushed by Democrats on the environmental, uh, the environment committee and, uh, really could have caused an environmental crisis in the state of Maine if private sector individuals, some municipal employees hadn't stepped up and said, there's a huge problem brewing here. Uh, and then I've been talking with you for the better part of the year about the steps that you've taken to go see what's happening at municipal waste treatment sites, talking with, uh, Casella, one of the top landfill managers in the state. So, Tell us a little bit about first, what did the previous legislature do that created the problem that you've been trying to solve for the better part of a year? Well, thank you for having me here, Steve. I, I appreciate it. It's a pleasure to be here. Of course. Uh, the sludge issue came to my attention back on March 1st of this year. And it was basically the uh, after effects of LD 1639, which was a law that was passed in the 130th legislature, which stopped out-of-state construction and demolition debris from being brought into the state of Maine to be processed and, and uh, recycled. Okay, so that, 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 I'll stop right there. That appeals to me. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't want, we don't want people from Massachusetts dumping their junk, junk in our state. You know, screw those, screw those people from away. Why should we be taking their garbage? That's true to an extent, but, but only to an extent. We were bringing that into Lewiston, running it through resources, our recycling plant there, which is an incredible facility. If you haven't been there, I highly suggest you go and take a tour. It's amazing. And we're bringing it in there, taking all the recyclable materials out of it. And then what was left over is called OBW, Oversized Bulky Waste. And that Oversized Bulky Waste was being taken to Juniper Ridge Landfill, our state landfill in Old Town, and being used to process our sludge which 30 utilities in the state, actually 31, one has moved away. Lewis and Auburn has moved over to Heartland from Juniper Ridge. But um, they, they, were, they were under contract with Casella to take their sludge up to, like I said, Juniper Ridge, and they need the oversized bulky waste in order to process that sludge up there. So it wasn't just taking um, out-of-state someone else's trash, mm-hmm. as it was kind of labeled to yeah. be. It yeah. wasn't. It was taking business material that we needed to process that sludge. Now, we take out-of-state waste in a lot of different forms. We take over 20 tons of... <laughs> There's all kinds of it on the coast of Maine. They own houses. <laughs> they, they go to Bar Harbor in the summer. Yes. And, <laughs> and, but but we, we bring it in. We bring waste in from mm-hmm. out-of-state. And Juniper Ridge and the construction debris wasn't the only one. As I was saying, 20 tons of food waste is brought into the state of Maine, into Exeter, to agri-energy, to their process, which goes from a waste to energy. Okay. And so we do that. We bring in uh, waste oil that's burned at some of the companies that here in the state. So we bring in other products as well. And this, this, uh, the bill from the 130th didn't apply to those 
No, it only applied to the oversized bulky waste that was useful for processing sludge. Just at Juniper Ridge. Okay. Not at any of the other facilities. Okay. So we had other landfills that were still allowed to bring it in. It was just that we couldn't bring it into uh, for, to Juniper Ridge. And so uh, let's let's uh, establish a uh, working understanding of what sludge is. Um, so basically, sludge is sludge is what uh, uh, when you flush the toilet if you're hooked up to a city waste system instead of a septic tank. Sludge is what eventually happens when the municipal waste facility is done with it. That's there, true. And there are a couple different versions of of sludge depending on whether they press it or dehydrate it or whatever whatever the treatment facility does, right? That's true. Whether it's pressed or whether it goes through an anaerobic digester, and uh, sludge is the biosolid that remains after the treatment of waste at a treatment facility. That's what it is. Okay. It's approximately 20% solids, 80% water, and they put a polymer in it, which uh, firms it up and gives it the consistency of a coffee ground. So nice, firm coffee ground human sludge is what we're yes. talking about. Exactly. That's what we're talking uh, about. And they transport it up to up to JRL. It goes up in uh, the trucks are about 25, 30 tons in a truck that goes up there. Um, I went up there and toured the facility at JRL. It's an incredible facility. The uh, truck would come in. They would dump a load of sludge there, and they had a couple of tractor trailers sitting there with OBW, oversized bulky waste, mm-hmm. and they're on uh, walking floors. So it's just a moving floor in the truck. So it just drops it right off in the, the waste, uh, the uh, OBW off in the end of it. And then there were bulldozers running back and forth, side to side, back and forth. It was a dance of heavy construction uh, equipment until they had it mixed at the right consistency so they could put it into the landfill. There's a term, it's called wheels up. As long as the landfill itself, the cell in the landfill is solid, the, the truck's uh, wheels are not sinking down into it, mm-hmm. wheels up, it's good. So you basically got, uh, you know, blue collar guys from northern Maine who understand landfill management and they're working with human sludge and construction debris in order to process all of the waste that allows people in Maine to enjoy indoor plumbing. Uh, that's true. Yeah. And we needed to get this under wraps very quickly. So let's, let's, well, let's talk about the, the, what the crisis was to, to start with. So, um, we've got the situation where at Juniper Ridge landfill, uh, which is operated by Casella Waste Systems. Uh, they've they've got this oversized uh, bulky waste that comes in. They're processing the sludge. The recycling place in Lewiston is making money. Casella's making money. We have uh, landfill management that's causing no real issues. And then uh, the legislature passes a bill that says no more oversized bulky waste can come in. And it got pretty nasty at the point when they passed this law because Casella and some other individuals, some other people... We're saying this is going to cause problems, exactly the problems that it eventually did cause. Mm -hmm. Um, So I guess we saw the law take effect very quickly after it was passed. It took effect in February. And how did Casella and different municipal uh, facilities that relied on Casella react to to the law taking effect? What happened was when the law went into effect, the law itself, LD 1639, had no guardrails or no direction in it. It didn't say, we're going to stop, but try this material okay. or try that material. Let's put it into a uh, uh, into an engineering report on biosolid disposal in the state of Maine. It didn't have any correct any direction moving forward. It just said, stop. So now you've got everyone wondering, what do we do now? Yes. You know, so, so it was environmentalists in the legislature just said, we don't like this. We don't stop. care what the consequences are. And I even think, I even think Senator Ann Carney went so far as to accuse... 
Casella of lying about what the consequences of the bill would be. I went back and I watched that hearing, and it was May 5th of 21, I think is when that hearing was. May, May 17th, excuse me, uh, of 21. And I watched that, and I was very surprised at how aggressive it was. Um, I don't know what specifically, as far as quoting the senator goes, but I do know that it was, we don't want to take, uh, it was very aggressive against taking the out-of-state waste. Mm-hmm. That was the very aggressive part of it. We shouldn't be using space in our landfill for out-of-state uh, you know, trash. Mm-hmm. But yet, then again, the other side of that was months later, what happens? We end up taking our sludge waste, our sewage waste into Canada. Yeah, so, so, so that's take that, you from, that's how they had to, that's how they had to respond. So Casella very predictably, like they said, because we don't have the bulky waste to stabilize the landfill stuff and we're still being expected to process this sludge, um, you know, somebody who used to be a, a landfill engineer described it to me as trying to build a pyramid out of jello because they've got more sludge, they've got less, uh, oversized bulky waste. They can't process it safely because if you have a landfill collapse, it's an environmental disaster. Um, so instead of, uh, risking that, they start trucking the sludge over the bridge into Canada. So you've got like somewhere between six and 12 loads of, of human shit <laughs> going over the bridge into Canada. Uh, not a, I, I'm surprised we haven't seen more of a backlash from Canada over that. Uh, but that also had the effect of raising costs for all of our municipalities. And I know at one point when they were trying to figure out how they were going to respond to this, there were some problems at the various municipal facilities as well. Well, can you talk a little bit about what the what the issues were on the ground level? Because I know you visited uh, a bunch of these places. I did. I went on a tour around a, um, a number of facilities. But uh, to back up just a little bit about going up to Canada, what JRL had to do, well, what Casella had to do, is they have another facility, Hawk Ridge, and that is their compost facility. And they were required, they had to, uh, where they couldn't get the bulky waste for JRL to do the processing there. And like I said, processing up there is very, very delicate. It is the solidification and stabilization process of that landfill. So there are specific guidelines that they have to go by in order to keep it Mm -hmm. stable. So they had to start taking where they couldn't take the additional sludge up there. They had to take it to Hawk Ridge. They were dumping it out, loading it onto Casella trucks and taking it up into New Brunswick, Canada, up to a compost facility up there. We were running about nine trucks a day about 30 tons per truckload up there to begin with. That cost to run that up was split over all the utilities that were contracted to JRL. Because you're talking about diesel gas for all of these, the extra labor. I mean, $61 a ton. Enormous cost. I mean, nine, nine trucks a day. Yeah. So no tons enormous costs. 400 miles round trip. Yeah. You know, so it was an enormous cost. And you couldn't just say, okay, it's going to be, uh, Freeport that we're going to target and mm-hmm. Freeport's the one that has to do it. They couldn't do that. JRL, uh, Casella is under an operating service agreement with the General Services Administration. They have guidelines they have to uh, abide by, mm-hmm. and they have to treat everyone fairly. So they, so they are, they, uh, Casella doesn't own the landfill. It's a state-owned landfill. It's, uh, it's outside of Old Town, right? Outside of Old Town, it's 780-acre site. Their contract is a 30-year contract, like I said, operating service agreement with General Services, and they have 12 years left on okay. that contract. And they had 31 utilities 31 towns that were um you know contracted to go to them and so and so i imagine you say it's a 70 uh, 780 acre facility if we're if it's such a pressing uh you know need to restrict out-of-state waste coming into a main landfill imagine it's going to be what 
seven seven hundred and seventy seven acres full at this point? Well, uh, no, not all. <laughs> I mean, there are thirteen cells. They build okay. cells, and they're like a giant square bathtub. Okay. They've got a little, you know, so uh, bathtub a liner full of sludge. Yeah, a liner under it, yeah. you know, which collects all the leachate, mm-hmm. okay, which is the uh, the um, uh, fluid that, that drains out of it, and mm-hmm. that's processed as well. Uh, most of it through either uh, uh, waste management or um, nine dragons and ND paper or through ECT. Two down in Madison, an incredible facility, by the way. Um, and they have 13 cells which are completed and done. Uh, they're about probably three quarters of the way through their 14th cell. The 15th cell had its footprint already there. It's ready to go sometime by the end of the summer. It'll be ready to go. Uh, it doesn't take up much space there. The m- most intriguing thing or incredible thing about JRL is that the entire landfill is piped and it has an incredible connecting piping system that all the methane that comes out of that, standing on top, I'm on top of the entire place. Mm-hmm. I couldn't smell a thing. Really? Not a thing. And are they burning the gas for uh, energy or anything? What they do is they have a collection facility, which is right there adjacent to it, and all of it goes in there, and they process it there to try and refine it. And right next door to that processing facility, they were in the midst of building an, a refinery there, so they could refine that methane, and they're going to be providing Bangor with 30% of its natural gas in wow. the coming years. So they're turning JRL into a giant uh, waste-to-energy production facility as well. Which you think would align with what environmentalists want, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, granted, I know where there's a there's a, a war on for natural gas stoves at this point in time, so I guess they'd prefer it's only solar and wind, but we, we can get to, get to that later, so... So we, we, so the, the point we're at is, uh, uh, February of this year, we've passed this law that says that you can't take this waste in to stabilize the, the landfill. They start trucking the waste into Canada. Municipal waste treatment bills go up. <clears throat> the, you know, town managers are saying, what the heck is going on? We can't do this. You know, in some cases, utility bills are going up 200%, um, and more. And Bangor alone went from 400000 a year to $1.1 million because of this problem. And that translates into higher property taxes, obviously. Property taxes, higher bills, higher everything. Okay. And so you've, you've gone to the waste treatment facilities. You've talked with Casella. You understand the, the problem that's going on. So what, uh, what I guess is the, what is the fix? What has been done to alleviate this in the short term and in the long term? After I... Did everything that you just said, and and and. Uh, By the way, did did were there any Democrats accompanying you to visit these landfills or municipal waste treatment facilities? No, no. Uh, it's curious. I, uh, yeah, it is. Uh, but it, as soon as I, it took about five weeks or so to figure out what was going on. The very first thing that we did was the uh, DEP commissioner Loisem asked me if I could set put together a trucking operation to start trucking the sludge out of state. It's and, interesting. Why do you ask you? Uh, she. 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 Um, because she had heard that I had connections so that I could get a hold of some trucking and, uh, she heard that she felt competent and, uh, <laughs> well, that I was able to get a hold of some trucking and I can. Yeah. So within, uh, 36 hours, I had a statewide trucking operation set up. Where do you need it taken from? Where do you need it taken to? We'll take it anywhere in the nation you want it to go. Mm-hmm. Then when they, fi- they figured out that they could not find a place that would take it at the way it was being pressed at 20% and 80% approximately. Um, then we 
switched gears to try and find an alternative bulking agent, and we couldn't find anything. We looked at wood chips. We couldn't use those because they make it too much of a mattressy effect. They would need too many wood chips yeah. in order to process that, so it didn't work. Yeah, and also the, I think there was some concern over if you switch to wood chips for this, you're just going to send the price of wood chips high because you're going to create such a demand for it, and then maybe uh, people who are he- heating their homes with wood pellet stoves are going to be uh, facing higher heating costs. Well, I, sp- I spoke with uh, some folks in that industry, and there was, at that time, there was a stockpile of wood chips here in the state oh, okay. because, uh, because uh, people were buying them off the boat from China. Okay. <laughs> and that's what I was told. So we have an excess. So we were going to have plenty of wood chips to be able to process this, but they just wouldn't work. Yeah. So then we looked at a few other different things. Tearing down buildings. It was their money in the DEP that they could could use for that. You, you guys look. You guys looked at tearing down yes. buildings Old to buildings. plow into landfills. Oh, yes, to, to stabilize yes. human excrement. Yes, we looked at that. We looked at uh, uh, various wood products uh, um, out of processing yards. You know, uh, what, what what could we possibly use? We couldn't find anything. So once we made that determination, or I made that determination, mm-hmm. I went to the governor's office and I met with Tom Abello. And fortunately enough, Tom was incredibly gracious, a really nice guy. And he spent about 30 minutes with me talking through this situation. And I went to ask for a governor's bill on an emergency to put a pause on 1639. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, well, do this, do this, do this. You know, that was on a Monday. I gathered a lot of the information he wanted on Tuesday. Wednesday morning, I, I ran into Commissioner Loisom, and uh, they had spoken. Uh, Tom and, and the commissioner had, and suggested I do one of two things, either get a uh, committee bill, because I'm on Environment and Natural Resource Committee, as well as Labor and Housing, but um, uh, get a committee bill together, or look at a bill that was being held by Senator Russell Black, uh, which was about construction debris. It hadn't been processed, it had been referred into Environment yet, but it hadn't gone to environment mm-hmm. yet. So you guys, so we could, you just needed the vehicle. To, we needed the vehicle, so we yeah. could do that. I didn't think that there was any way I would get a fair shake at a bill through the committee. So I went and I spoke with Senator Black, and he said, yes, you can use that bill. Okay. So we used that bill to modify the language in that bill. We had it done within a couple of days, and we had it at committee, which would put a, it started out, the first thought was a 14-month pause on 1639. I thought that might work. We might get that through. When we ended up uh, modifying the language, it was to 24 months just to put a pause on it. We figured that would give us enough time. That would give enough time for the Department of Environmental Protection to do an engineering study on biosolid, uh, you know, waste in the state. Uh, it would give enough time so that we could get the system back up and running. I spoke with Resource in Lewiston. They could have trucks running within a couple of days. We could get the bulky waste heading back up to Juniper Ridge. And then went and spoke with Tim Wade at the Maine Wastewater uh, Association and got them, those guys on board. They, that's the association that all of the treatment uh, facility plant managers belong to. And it was, guys, does this work for you? Mm-hmm. And it did. So that's what we used as a vehicle goal. And, and through this, you were able to get the governor's support for this. Well, it was back and forth a number of different times, and I had to go ask a number of different times. One of the after about uh, two weeks into it, I received an invitation to go to breakfast with at the governor at the with the governor at the mansion. What was that around eleven o'clock? Uh, it was <laughs> no, it was in the morning. Oh, it was, and I wasn't the only one. There were a half a dozen, uh, you know, um, 
I think four or five representatives, a couple senators that were there, and a lot of her staff, her aides, her assistants. Tom was there. The governor was there. And I'm very conservative, and I normally wouldn't have done that. Uh, but I, this was an important issue. Yeah. And I was incredibly surprised with how gracious the governor was. I really was. I walked in. She walked right up to me, stuck her hand out, and she said, Mike Soboleski, welcome. I said, I'm surprised you know my name. She said, I do. I said, then you know I'm here to talk about sludge. She leaned in just a little bit, and she said, they were warned. I said, yes, ma'am. But she signed the bill. She said she was warned. They were warned and she was warned. That's right. Yeah. And that's what she said. This is a remarkable thing. I, you know, there are one of the, one of the overwhelming themes of, uh, the, the main politics in Augusta has been that the governor really doesn't like to admit that she was wrong about something. And it seems like in this instance, you were able to, to get her to admit that she was wrong. Well, I, I, I wouldn't characterize it quite that way. Okay. I mean, I she was, signed the bill. I was just grateful to get the support. Yeah. My whole thing wasn't about blame. It wasn't about blaming, you know, and, and I told Senator Carney, Senator Carney called me on a Sunday morning at home and we talked about this. And I told her that I don't disagree with 1639. I didn't disagree with 1911, which stopped the sludge from being put on yeah, the Yeah, we can, we can get into that as well. Whole problem. Yeah. In the very beginning. Yeah. Okay. I didn't, I don't disagree with the bill at all. I disagree with how it's been handled and mm-hmm. what's going on. And it now is a problem. And all I want is a solution to the problem. So after the governor had said that, you know, they were warned, I said, yes, they were. She said, I was going to sign. I was thinking about an executive order for it. I said, why didn't you? She said, because action is being taken. You know, the bill that we... Okay. So, um, and then after that, it was a number of times going back and forth with Tom. I didn't speak with the governor again. I was grateful that she had taken the time to get involved with it and get her two cents worth of support behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I was with Tom quite a bit after that. We, we talked a number of times, and I every single time, I have the governor's support. Correct? Correct? Yeah, mm-hmm. well, we need to do this, and we need to fix that. And and as it came down in the end, we got a uh, uh, the bill and committee. Um, when it went through its it, – it was a lot of debate back and forth, a lot of discussion. And uh, a lot of negotiation. It was a three-hour work session on it in the end. But in the end, the ten of us that were in the room were an, an unanimous on the vote. Uh, then afterwards, there were three Democrats that did not were not there for the workshop work session. Uh, and Carney was one of them, Senator Carney. She came in afterwards and voted yes. Uh, then uh, Dan Hobbs, our representative, came in uh, from Wells, I believe, came in and he voted yes. And then the only wrinkle was uh, sent, uh, Representative Maggie O'Neill. She came in and she re- said no. She wasn't going to get on board. So we didn't get a unanimous report out of the committee so it could go under the hammer. It'll still pass. I talked mm-hmm. to Tom just a couple of days ago, and I said we should have no problem. He said no, we won't have a problem with this passing. But I was disappointed that um, Representative O'Neill didn't understand the gravity of it. And yeah, but I mean, she, was, she didn't even come to the work session. Well, the, yeah, that, and she also thinks that, like, Portland's going to be underwater in 10 years. She's, like, literally said that in, in, in committee hearings, so I don't think you should take it as a, a personal slate that she hasn't got well, behind all the work you've done. I didn't. I was just disappointed that someone would not come and sit and listen to the arguments, listen yeah. to both sides of the story. The science. Make, listen to the science, listen yeah. to make an objective opinion. Her entire thing was I want more information about Casella's business practices. 
And uh, they've got to spin that over again. We want to see their contracts. We want to see their profit and loss. We want to see, you know. So there was a little bit of like a Bernie Sanders thing going on here where it's corporate, corporate greed, these robber barons. It was. And finally, it came down to a Madam Chair point of order. Yeah. You know, this is not a trial and Casella is not on trial here. They're not required under their operating service agreement to disclose any of that information. And the only way we're entitled to it is through a subpoena, and this committee does not have that subpoena. But they're also they're a publicly traded company, so they're regulated by the SEC. They have to file all kinds of paperwork about their financials regularly. And they have they're, they're they're regulated more than than a non publicly traded company. There's more transparency into how they operate. And, and they it, have a great, great environmental record. At JRL and at Hawk Ridge, Hawk Ridge is impeccable, and there has never been a formal complaint filed against JR against Casella through General Services. And, and to be clear, what we were talking about, you know, the 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 I called it sludge apocalypse. It did, did. It did not. It did not <laughs> catch on. It, it did not catch on. But but it was pretty what, good. What sludge apocalypse was was when the Juniper Ridge landfill can't handle the amount of sludge that's coming. And then another bill, LD 1911, for uh, PFAS mitigation re- reasons, says you can't use sludge for these purposes. The amount of sludge went up as their ability to process it went down, and so they have to stop taking it. So municipal facilities, are their, their extra storage tanks are just filling up. So you literally had uh, an overwhelming amount of human excrement just piling up in the state and nowhere to put it. And the risk was that you're either going to have a landfill collapse because you can't properly, stably store it in the landfill, or you're going to have a big rain event while these wastewater overflow tanks are too high, and then it ends up flowing into the rivers. So it wasn't it wasn't just a, a increasing the cost of uh, you know mu- municipal bills, property taxes. Uh, there was a very real risk of an environmental catastrophe if we had a a unpredictable weather event. There was, and uh, a number of the utilities came in to speak. There were a lot of them there both for the public hearing and for the work session as well. And uh, and they spoke just exactly to that. If we can't, you know, deal with this, we won't be able to press it down as much. That means it'll be more um, more liquid substance. Mm-hmm. Uh, Even less stable. And, and, let, and be a lot less stable. If we do have that big event, that could happen. And what happens is when they do process that sludge down, whether they run it through the presses or through the digester, they have what's called effluent. And it's the water that's left over after it's been mm, processed. Yummy. And well, it's it's not dangerous. It's not hazardous. Yeah. Would I drink it? No. <laughs> but that's why all of these facilities, these treatment facilities, are on rivers, because they have permits to be able to put that the effluent into the rivers, mm-hmm. and then it just gets processed and and eaten through. And um, that was one of the the big things they were afraid they weren't going to be able to press it enough. There would be more in the affluent, and when it went out, we'd be putting waste into the into our environment. And they spoke a number of times about not only the environmental crisis of it, but the health crisis of it in the committee, and it just went right over the heads. Mm-hmm. Nobody, nobody blamed. Well, this bill was about environmental justice, Mike. The this was it was thirteen it was 1939 that contained they kind of wedged in a definition of environmental justice, right? Uh, 16, attempted to 1630, 1639, yes. and that was in that in that uh, um, um, public hearing mm-hmm. back there in May of 21. Uh, it came up, and that was one of the first questions that Senator Carney was asked: What was her di- definition of environmental justice? And there wasn't a clear-cut definition, so they did an amendment for it, and they came up with a definition of environmental justice. I don't know where it came from. 
Um, and I don't remember it off the top of my head, yeah. but they came up with a specific definition. So the, so the definition of environmental justice as established by this bill is something that liberals do to screw up something that's working and then a Republican later has to come in and fix it. Is that what, is that how they establish it? I know you're too gracious to respond well, to that. <laughs> um, well, unfor- unfortunately, the uh, term that you used earlier, Steve, of unintended consequences, I cannot tell you how many times yeah. I've heard that in more different contexts mm-hmm. uh, right now in things that we're trying to fix and repair uh, because we didn't have a fair and balanced government for the 130th legislature. Yeah. And we don't have one now for the 131st. Uh, so we're running into the same issues now. I see them over and over again. Like I said, I'm on two committees, Environment, Natural Resources, and Labor. As I said, I've seen a lot of bills, probably in excess of 400 of them come through. And it gets pretty tired to sit there and say, this has uh, got a D on it. We have to have this bill. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. what it is. We have to have it. This has got an R. doesn't matter what it is. That's crap. Yeah, there's a lot of lot of uh, tribalism it's going true. on in the state house. True. And, and when, when you have the, you know... The, both, both of the legislative branch and the executive branch kind of controlled by the same party. Uh, all the decisions are getting made at the Senator Inn or in the Blaine House or at the Augusta Country Club where they like to caucus. You know, there, there's very little that's, there's very little excitement or tension about what's going to happen in a committee because the results are already predetermined with few exceptions. I mean, the, the going back to the 1901 flag as we saw last night. You know, that's that's one that will cut uh, an interesting line through the parties. But for the most part, everything this session has just been uh, Republicans, no Democrats. Yes, it it has. It, it, it has predominantly that way. We've had some successes. Uh, fortunately enough, we've been able to um, have those conversations. There are some of the Democrats, some of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle. There are some that are are reasonable to talk with. Reasonable meaning a reasonable discussion, mm-hmm. not not bringing them to either side. Yeah. It's just you can sit and talk. Yeah. And the talk is, why do you feel that way? I don't understand. Mm-hmm. This is how I feel. Why do you feel the way you feel? And trying to understand the difference between the two mindsets is it's quite a dynamic that's there. We've had our successes as far as some of the Republican legislation goes, but they've been very few and far between. 718, even though it's been reported in committee as, you know, 12 to 1 in committee, it still hasn't come out yet. Oh, tell me about 718. That's, that's the sludge bill. Oh, okay, okay, okay. That's, that was the that's yeah. 718. It still hasn't come out of committee yet. Mm-hmm. And we voted that out a month ago. So I keep looking at the calendar. I looked at it this morning. Are we going to have it today? Are we going to have it, you know, did yesterday? I do every day. So it's been sitting for a month. And, it, and once we received a unanimous vote in committee on that bill, we put an emergency preamble on it. That means there is no delay from the time the governor signs it. There's no mm-hmm. 90-day delay. It'll go into effect immediately. So sludge apocalypse so, immediately averted. Immediately averted. And part of that deal, and I, I, I've got, to, I'd be remiss if I didn't say this. Part of that deal was that Casella needed to memorialize in writing that they will, within 15 days of it being signed into law, stop the trucks from going over the border and re- remove the LD1639 surcharge on all of the utility bills. Okay. I'm, I'm surprised it didn't cause a bigger international crisis. You know, if I, if I'm, if I'm living in Brunswick, because the thing is that the, the, the LD1911, the bill that stopped us from putting, taking the sludge and putting it on farmland because the sludge has PFAS in it because we have PFAS in us. 
it's it's still being put on farmland. The sludge that was taken into Canada went to a company that turned it into lawn fertilizer. Yeah. So the PFAS is still being introduced into the environment just somewhere outside of Maine, which That's is true. you know kind of an interesting dynamic of this. But I'm surprised that the people, the good people of New Brunswick, uh, didn't raise a little bit more of a fuss over this. There was a fuss, and um, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation contacted me through my aide um, right after the public hearing um, and wanted to have a discussion about it. I held off on that. I didn't want to have that discussion. I had heard rumblings mm-hmm. that people in New Brunswick were getting upset about that. I knew that once we had moved Lewiston Auburn away from JRL and they went or once they had moved away from JRL um, and went to Heartland, that reduced down the amount that was being taken up there. So we were able to reduce by three truckloads. So it came down to six. Mm-hmm. It was a good step in the right direction. I didn't want to get into a dialogue with Canadian Broadcasting. <laughs> you don't want to take a fight I, with the Mounties? No. I, well, I, I didn't want to say the wrong thing. Yeah. You know, without a script in front of you, I, I didn't yeah. want to you take a cause a Cause a diplomatic anybody. incident? When I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, when I said, when I, when I made Justin, comment, You don't want Justin Trudeau calling you out <laughs> on Canadian oh, Broadcasting? Please, Justin, give me a call. I'll talk, <laughs> I'll talk with you. Uh, and I, and uh, But I didn't want to take a chance on saying the wrong word and having my words not accepted as they were intended. Yeah. I had made a comment during the public hearing that uh, we can't put the stuff on the ground anymore. We have to take action. A note came back to me was, uh, from up in Canada, do you, do, by saying that you can't, we can't put it on the ground, does it mean you believe it's dangerous? No, that's not uh, what I'm saying. By yeah, law, yeah, we can't yeah, do yeah. that. Don't twist my words. <laughs> Last week on Tuesday, I finally got together with Canadian Broadcasting. I spent 20 minutes uh, live, actually recorded, um, mm-hmm. recorded an interview with those guys just to talk about what's happened, to thank our neighbors to the north in New Brunswick. Thank you for being patient with us. Thank, thank you, you for putting up with our shit. Exactly. Thank you for doing what you did. Yeah. You know, it was it, it saved us an environmental crisis and um, and to thank them. And I did it so that I could make sure the air was clear, make sure they understood progress was being made, to thank them for being the good neighbors that they are. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was what was important. So we and, didn't talk it out. And thank them for two years from now, if this law takes effect again and we need to start shipping it over the border, the door is still open. I don't believe it will. Okay. I think that we're going to be able to get the engineering study done. I know that the funds are there. I know the process has already started with it. I've spoken with the commissioner about it. Uh, there's also a process that I want to uh, see if we can get it put in place that will, excuse me, we have a lot of in-state construction demolition debris. A mm-hmm. lot of it. Every town, you go in the dumpsters there. Mm-hmm. You throw your old chairs in. You throw your old couches in and all that stuff. Um, and um, that stuff there, that's what we were bringing in from oversized the- bulky west. Yeah. Okay. So we need to make sure that those dumpsters are covered so they don't get wet. Wet material doesn't help mm-hmm. because we need it to absorb. We need to make sure that those dumpsters are covered and make sure that they are routed so that they can either go to JRL or go to Lewiston to the recycling processing center and then have the oversight bulky waste taken up to JRL um, instead of having those dumpsters go to landfills that don't process sludge. So we have enough here. And there's also a lot of buildings in the state that need to come down. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of them. And uh, if we can start, if we can uh, put together a program which will start 
taking care of that, it cleans up our environment, it gets those nasty buildings down, and it puts them to good use as, you know, uh, at the landfill. So um, there's there's things that are in the process. I believe that two years is going to be sufficient time. I don't think we'll be revisiting this because we will be able to switch away from uh, out-of-state construction debris. It was 30% is all that we needed of that stuff to make JRL whole. How much did you know about waste management uh, when you took office in November? I didn't know a lot about it. So you just you just kind of I know where dove, you dove <laughs> you dove headfirst into this thing and learned uh, how the, how the system works and I I it's interesting. Kind of, I kind of had to because after the trucking was set up and we decided then it was basically the trucks themselves mm-hmm. that was it. And then once the trucking was set up, then it was what are the trailers? What are they going to have to haul? Are they flatbeds that they're going to be taking dumpsters on? Mm-hmm. Are they, uh, you know, dump trucks? You know, what do we need? So I had to go and start uh, examining and researching what is sludge. Yeah. I, I didn't know. Yeah. So the very first place I went to, KTSD, uh, which is uh, takes care of Kennebec uh, Treatment Sewer District and uh, uh, Sanitary District. And that's up in Waterville. And I went up and I met with Nick Champagne. And I he toured the facility, gave me a tour of the facility. And that one day, I went from there, I went down to Augusta, met with Ryan Tarbach down there. He showed me that facility. And then I went over to Lewiston, Auburn, and met with Travis Peasley. And Travis is one of the smartest men about that industry. He is just incredible how intelligent he is about this process, what it takes to process it, what needs to be done in order to process it the most efficient way to get it as dry as possible. The end goal, Steve, on sludge is to get it as dry as possible. Mm-hmm. The drier it is, the less bulking agent you need for it and the more stable yeah. it is. So that was it. So that very first day, I visited three facilities and um, learned a lot in one day about shit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so let's, let's talk a little bit about offshore wind power. Uh, you know, the, the energy policy is another, another area where I think previous legislatures have caused some issues. Community solar is one of those, uh, public advocates now saying that the community solar program, these massive subsidies for solar developers can end up costing all ratepayers in the state of Maine $220 million a year. Um, most of that money is flowing out of the state of Maine. Uh, 88% of the companies registered with the PUC to work uh, as sponsors or marketers in the um, community solar program, they are from out of state. They're from Massachusetts. Um, so I, I understand the desire not to want garbage from Massachusetts flowing into Maine, but we should also maybe be concerned about money from Mainers pockets flowing out of the state of Maine and back into Massachusetts or Washington, D.C., uh, the wind power, it seems like we're setting up a similar dynamic. It's a little bit of a different industry, but there's an effort now uh, by uh, the majority to pass a bill that's going to give a bucket load of government money to build a, a massive port system somewhere on the coast. The idea is that this port is going to be where we build our wind turbines. Um, we've, it seems like they've, they've kind of just established it as inevitable that we're going to build these wind turbines out in the Gulf rather than just building a nuclear facility that would be cheaper and renewable and wouldn't require, you know, filling the Gulf with these massive wind turbines. It's besides the point. Um, but the, the, the sticking point that has emerged is whether or not this port construction legislation is going to contain a project labor agreement, which is basically uh, a, a string that the government attaches to a bill that says all the money from this is going to benefit unionized construction labor. And 
that's kind of an issue in Maine because our largest construction companies like Sargent and Chinbro and Reed and Reed are employee owned. They don't, they're not unionized. Their employees don't want to unionize. They've got a pretty good deal and their employees would benefit from the being able to participate in this construction. Maine people would be employed working on the port, but they want this project labor agreement. And some people think that the consequences of putting a PLA on the port construction bill is that labor, uh, unionized labor from Massachusetts or elsewhere in the state is going to be brought in to work on that port facility, which doesn't really serve the interests of Mainers when you get down to it. It doesn't. As far as energy goes, my stance, um, to preference at all, my stance on energy is that we have incredible hydro that at our disposal. We should be taking full advantage of that. We should be taking advantage of Seabrook. Seabrook has an excess of power right now. They're auctioning off. Mm-hmm. We should be down there. We should be buying that up. That is clean energy. Hydro is clean energy. We should be going that direction. And it's, it's stable, too. You, hydro, hydro is more stable than solar and wind. But nuclear is so stable. If you go to ISO New England and look at the real-time chart of what our power consumption is, nuclear is a straight line across. Wind is like this, and solar, obviously, is like this. It's totally unpredictable. Everything else on the grid has to... Uh, bend to accommodate these expensive subsidized uh, options of wind and solar. It does. And I'm in favor of wind and solar. If you want it on your house, do it. Yeah. <laughs> put a panel on your house. If you want to do it, put a windmill up at your house. If you want to do it, I am. I it, it breaks my heart to drive down here into Augusta and look what they've lined the roads with, with those panels. The The most upsetting part of it is, is that they do not have a plan and are not viably looking for a plan on how we're going to deal with that down the road. These solar panels that they're putting out right now are huge. You see them right on in all of these solar fields. Yeah. They're huge. Yeah. So from, from looked at the second generation, the next generation ones are incredibly small, but they're 10 times as efficient as these ones. Mm-hmm. So they're saying that we're putting these out and we're not going to have to deal with recycling them and, and what we're going to be doing with them for 20 years from now because they have a 20 year shelf life. Well, I don't think that's quite going to be the case because if you look at my Starlink that I have at home, that first dish that I got is this big around and it's an incredible, incredible setup. Mm-hmm. Starlink internet is. And, but the new one, and that was only a handful of years ago. My neighbor got one two years ago. It's this big and it's more powerful. Yeah, it's just so the, it's the same as anything. Yeah. Then I did the research on the next generation of solar panels. They're so small. And in the state of Maine, we do not have a recycling facility that's licensed to recycle a solar panel. The closest one's Ohio. So when I went to resources to talk about, um, you know, JRL and the OBW, I brought that subject up. You know, you're a, you're yeah, what's going to happen with these solar panels? Everybody loves these solar panels, but what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And the answer is pretty plain and simple. All we can do is put them on a pallet, ship them over to the facility that does it, which is in Ohio. It's going to cost $25, $30 per panel to send over there. People aren't going to do that. They're going to bust these things up, and they're going to end up in our landfill, and there are toxic chemicals inside those, toxic chemicals. And um, so there's no set in stone process for it. We've been trying to, and there was actually legislation from uh, Representative Lemlin put in legislation on dealing with solar panels and dealing with the recycling, which caused, which uh, was to have bonds put up, uh, not a bond, a um, uh, like a deposit. Yeah, so that if you're if you're profiting from operating the solar field, right. 
you we have some kind of assurance that you're going to deal with the mess when it's when it's over with. Someone will deal with it other than the community and the people in exactly. that community. That's yeah. it. Yeah. Because what's going to happen is these companies going to change hands. Yeah. Or they're for, they're formed under LLCs. Like the wind turbines up in up in Bingham in northern Maine, they're each turbine is owned by a separate LLC. Yeah. So if if a wind turbine causes a fire or if there's some kind of environmental disturbance, the amount of uh, uh I guess blame that the company can take for that is very limited because of the corporate structure it is and so there's no viable you know pathway to recycling and tearing this stuff down when it becomes obsolete and it's going to we have i think it's down in blue hill we have a windmill array down there that's already almost 20 years old it's already at the end of its shelf life what's going to happen where are they going to go what are you going to do yeah, and no plan in place. And I mean, I think you're talking so, about you're talking about wind turbines in Blue Hill and solar panels in Augusta, fairly easy to access places. Now we're talking about putting wind turbines in the Gulf of Maine, and then <laughs> what do you, what do you do with those when they're done? Like, what assurance do you have that the corrosive salt and wind environment of the Gulf of Maine isn't just going to mean that those crumble into the ocean? Well, when I, I, I now as far as the the wind port itself goes, yeah. Um, I've been through two briefings on that and dealt with a couple of different bills already on it. Um, I am steadfast against it. I've done research. I found where there have been a couple of windport projects around the nation which have been uh, stopped all of a sudden because they haven't become been viable projects to do. Well, I mean, none of it's viable without subsidies. One of them's down in New Bed. No, one of them's down in New Bedford. Okay, and the people have made that one stop. Yeah. So. Uh, from what I understand, this Windport project is going to happen down to Searsport. They're looking for 1,500 feet of frontage on deep water frontage. They want a minimum of 50-acre lot. They want up to 100 acres. And that's where they're going to be building those turbines. The um, At first, they're going to start shipping them in in big piece yeah you know already constructed yeah well i mean anybody anybody who was in maine and looking at the news when they were trucking them up to mars hill remembers the pictures of them trying to navigate like uh you know a downtown street and it's like you're trying to get the big propeller blades around so it's it's, it is quite a process it is quite a process in the very first thing and then after they've got it up and running they want to um start doing more assembly there as well as just putting the big pieces together. Their f- plan is to put 15 out. That's their first plan, 15 turbines out there. They're 750, 800 feet high. From what I understand, in order to, uh, if at 350 feet high, they can be seen from 60 miles away. And they're going to have to have the bright red lights on them, like the ones in uh, Bingham, right? They are. Yeah. And uh, I mean, those, I, was, I can, I, my, my grandfather lived in Ripley, and you used to have this nice view of, you know, western, northern Maine out his back window. And when they put those wind turbines in at night, you just see synchronized, blinking red lights. That's a pretty good distance away. You're going to see a lot of them. Yeah. Senator Curry brought a, uh, brought a bill in, and it was for, um, it's this one here. An act regarding port facilities relating to offshore wind power projects. Um, he... He brought this one in, and he also brought another one in, um, which was for uh, the visual aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I grilled him pretty good at at the uh, work session on that, and and because in the language of that was a lot of permitting language, so it wasn't just about the visual aspect of it; it was also about the development. 
So it seemed to me when it came to the Winport, it was separating bills over different committees. And so you didn't get to have one committee take it on in its totality. Mm -hmm. You only got pieces of it. Okay. One of the comments that Senator Curry made was that it was going to be an effort for the state of Maine to seek the energy independent, uh, no, to attain the energy independent that we seek. Well, that was, I, I didn't take that one very well at all. And, and my comment immediately back was, Senator, if you remember correctly, three years ago, we had energy independent. We had a dollar ninety-eight a gallon, a gallon gasoline. Mm-hmm. My electric bill was half as much as it is right now. Thank you, solar community mm-hmm. solar. You know, my propane was two twelve instead of the two uh, instead of the three eighteen I paid or whatever it was just then. We had energy independent. It just wasn't the energy independence that you liked. Mm-hmm. So this is not a step towards energy independence. And it and it's like there's there's ideological reasons why they favor it. There, I mean, there's there's certainly there's like the. Uh, the uh, representative O'Neills who believe that, um, you know, Portland's going to be underwater in 10 years if we don't do something. Um, but there's also a lot of money to be made. You know, these, these, these community solar companies are making insane amounts of money and they're not part of the community. They've just in some cases gone in and bought a development or bought subscribers and they're just collecting the subsidy. Um, and in the, and it's kind of the same for the wind turbines. I mean, absent subsidies, nobody would build any of these wind turbines. But you see, there's there's an array of all these, the 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 coalition to do offshore wind in Maine, the Maine Renewable Energy Association, all these nice sounding groups, and they've all got a board of advisors with retired politicians and lobbyists, and there's a lot of money being made in this. It's not just the unions. There's some some corporate interests that stand to profit handsomely from this, and in some ways they're kind of exploiting this environmentalist fear that that has been baked into the left. People are, especially in my generation, are terrified of the climate apocalypse, and they'll they'll do anything. They'll they'll support anything that says wind or solar because they believe that that's like the path to environmental salvation. Uh, true, but and and that was brought up in that in that work session as well. And I my comment then was that in my lifetime, in the last fifty years that I've been cognizant of what's been going on around me, nothing's changed. Well, it still gets cold. It's still acid, gets acid they, rain, global cooling, global warming. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's ocean acidification now. There was the ozone layer. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's always there's always some kind of environmental scandal. And, so, and some of them, to be to be fair, have been solved fairly easily, like the uh, the ozone issue. Uh, but it seems like the solution to this problem is um, just to make people poorer and to make people who have well connected uh, po- politician friends very wealthy. Well, one of the things that uh, that really stood out to me about dealing with the wind port issue is there's been no environmental protests on this. So this, this is, know. this is interesting as whales, as w- dead whales keep piling up in New Jersey, dead, there's but, similar projects. And it's not just what it's going to do on, on the, um, well, first off, they, they tried global cooling that mm-hmm. fell by the way. They tried global warming that fell by the way. Now what is it? Climate change. Of course. So now they were fighting for climate stasis. Ex- exactly. So now <laughs> if we can, if we can, if we can win this battle against climate change, the climate will be as it was before. I know in the panic, 47 degrees when I woke up at my house this morning. Oh my gosh, we're in the end of June. Uh, you know, we're in June. Yeah. It's, you know, blah, blah, blah. I understand. But one of the things that, like I said, that stood out to me was that where are the, where are the activists? For the environment on this. Well, they've all when been you bought. Talk about, when you talk about the damage it's going to cause to the seafloor, what it's going to do to the wildlife out there in the ocean, what it's going to do to mm-hmm. the fish, the whales, what's going to happen on, on the uh, um, on land, 
to that 100 acres, all of the animals that live on the, on the, um, um, you know, on the seashore itself. I asked this question to, um, uh, when we had, um, public hearing on, uh, no, excuse me, public comment on the uh, solar fields. And we had some folks in whom I asked, uh, the department, DEP, and with all of these solar projects that are going on in the state of Maine, has we ever denied a permit? for any one of the projects based on the animals that live there, their breeding grounds, their feeding grounds. What about the worms, the moles, the, you know, the spiders, you know, the, the rabbits. What about the game trails to, to, and the bedding in those areas? I said, have we ever denied one? And I said, no. And what about the, the pesticides and herbicides that you're using to keep the vegetation down uh, around the solar panels? And they fence them off with the chain link fence. So it, mm-hmm. it, it disrupts, you know, game trails and whatnot. And the rain that comes down on those panels themselves and the um, uh, the damage that it does to the ground under them, environmental seems to be only important when it's the issue of the day. Yeah. Well, it seems like it's totality. I think you have a lot of environmental activists and there's plenty of conservatives who like the idea of being good stewards of the environment. They like the idea. I mean, it's the the idea of not being wasteful is even a concept in most of the Judeo-Christian religions. It's uh, something most people agree with. But it seems like environmentalists on the left have kind of been co-opted by these people who are making a lot of money in wind and solar, like a lot of money. It is, which is an it, it's a kind of an odd pairing because these same people who are saying, uh, you know, we need wind and solar to save the environment, uh, they're also um, vilifying corporate corporations and capitalism and it's like well you know what do you what do you think is taking advantage of these wind subsidies what do you think is taking advantage of community solar this isn't just capitalism this is crony capitalism and you guys are just lining up to support it and they don't seem very interested in saving the whales right now they don't and uh, uh they they have an agenda they have an agenda with with the green agenda with their wind and with their solar and it does not matter what how much damage it does it really doesn't. In my, that's my opinion mm-hmm. that that they don't, because every single time that we've had a hearing about these issues, they're not lined up out there like they are on some other issues. It's weird to really complain about the damage it's going to cause at all. Um, we look what we went through with um, Shamit Dam at Sappy. Yeah, with the permitting. Why? Because of a few fish. They mm-hmm. did the stink that was put up about that. You know, yet. Here we're going to turn our entire Gulf, the west, the uh, the eastern Gulf of the state of Maine, into a giant wind factory for, to provide energy for the United States. It's not even guaranteed it's going to be for us. They have well, this, yeah, that's the other thing. Deal the renewable the renewable energy credits yeah. get sold into other states. Yeah, they, we haven't even worked out the deal where it's going to be that beneficial to us. And going back to your project labor agreement, um, we discussed that a lot. And one of the first things I did was I went and I read the um, National Labor Relations Act to see how it was going to jive with that and how it would, how it would work together. Uh, one thing that stood out for me for that was that, oh, and first off, the federal government is not requiring that PLA. They're recommending it. The state is requiring the PLA. Well, I mean, we know where Which that's coming from. really surprised me. That's coming from unions. Well, it's but, coming from Senator Jackson, Senate, no. Senate President Jackson, and which, which really surprised me that we were stepping over that that recommendation mm-hmm. to do what they're doing. So, under the National Labor Relations Act, the employer is not allowed to engage in any way with the employee with regard to 
union business. They can't help recruit them into a union. Mm-hmm. They, they And the union can't accept assistance from an employer. The union has to do it on their own. Right? So the employee is free without influence to make their own decision whether they want to be influenced by uh, this union or not. Under that Winport, the state of Maine is going to be the employer of record. So how's that going to come into play? Hmm. How are they going to work there? Yeah. And and I believe that, uh, and what they've done is, and I believe it's a buffer between both of those two entities, where they put a labor peace agreement in. So that I've done a lot of research on that, and I'm still I'm not done with my research to be able to make any yeah. determinations or or specific opinion on that. But I believe that the labor peace agreement has been put in place specifically. Like I said, as a buffer between the two. I think what's going to end up happening here is, as you said, Sergeant, Chimbro, Reed and Reed, they've, they've all, they've never worked under a, um, under a PLA. And, and in the, um, briefing, uh, or public hearing, they said they never, they won't. Yeah. They're not interested at yeah. all. So what's going to end up happening? Just like you said, there's going to be an incredible influx of out of state workers coming in and taking these main jobs mm-hmm. just because of, the documents, not because we don't have the people who do the work, yeah, but because of the regulations that are going to be put on it by the state. And to, and to be clear, this is kind of uh, you know a money laundering operation because the state is going to take money from working Mainers in the form of taxes. They're going to subsidize this project. They're going to require unions to come in. Money from Maine taxpayers is going to flow into union coffers, and then the unions are going to turn around and give money to the Democrats, the Democrat Party, and the politicians who supported the policy in the first place. Well, it's a neat little operation they have. You don't have to call it a money laundering operation, but it's a, a money laundering. It's a money laundering operation. That is a scenario, but yeah. the government's putting a lot of money in on this. The government's putting a no. The taxpayers are the, uh, exactly. The taxpayers are putting a lot of money. Exactly. The politicians are putting our money into yeah. this project. About a billion dollars. Yeah, about a billion dollars worth. And out of our 50,000 construction workers that we have in the state of Maine, only about 10% are unionized. So it's going to make, and that was testimony in, in committee. So, excuse me, it's going to make, um, it's going to make quite a difference when it actually comes to fruition. I'm not 100% convinced it's going to make it all the way there. I think if everybody backs off and we let it go through its process, it'll happen. Mm-hmm. I think if people start saying, Hey, no. This is not what we want. Yeah. We don't want our Gulf turned into a giant wind factory for the rest of the country. We want uh, Maine to be the vacation land in the great state that mm-hmm. it is. We don't want to turn it into New Jersey, which is slowly coming, becoming, you know, by with all of this green takeover. And do you think, do you think maybe once all the dead whales start washing up on the coast, we can use them as oversized bulky waste? <laughs> the Juniper Ridge, or is they just not going to help that's stabilize? Not, uh, that's not going to work. That's not going to help. It's going to make a stinky mess is what it's going to do. Yeah. And if that time came, it would be interesting to see exactly what the environmentalists do then. Well, you know, now, the one, saying, one thing they are saying is that the, which is incredible to me because of the stink they put up with our lobstermen and the yes. little yeah. round ropes that they use, you yes. know, they were going to destroy the lobstering industry over what destroyed it. The turbines that they're going to take out there, they can't pour the concrete for them out there. They have to mold the concretes onshore, take them out there, and drop them. The cables that they use to hold those uh, platforms to the concrete, they say they're about as big around as a car. Yeah, they're not going to. They're, they're not easy breaking lobster lines. They're just 
Mash it. Yeah. Not so to mention the noise. The noise disturbs the the goes green down, habitats. Lays on the bottom like the way they designed them to be environmentally mm-hmm. friendly. The lobstermen are awesome. They they do a great job at the, at their craft, and they've perfected it to be not only efficient for them but efficient for our our environment as well. And um, uh, but instead of just of some of those lines down, now we're going to have these massive cables down there. The damage it's going to do to the seafloor. To the to the life on the sea floor, uh, it, it, uh, I, it's it's hard to think that they would surpass all of that and just disregard all that. We have to have the turbine. We're focused on the turbine. That's mm-hmm. it. It's very narrow mind. And the other thing I found with community solar, I think this is true of offshore wind as well, is it's all justified on the basis of emissions reduction. We're going to reduce. We've got our emissions target. We've set this. This is going to be the overwhelming priority of state government. But they can't tell you how much community solar has reduced carbon emissions, and they can't tell you how much it will in the future. Uh, when I was looking into community solar, I asked the Department of Environmental Protection, the Public Utilities Commission, the Governor's Energy Office, the Maine Renewable Energy Association, asked them all, how much is this going to reduce Maine's carbon footprint, and how much how much is that going to correspond in terms of global climate temperatures? And none of them have an answer. And the companies that own the solar panels can say, well, if you plug our nameplate capacity into the Environmental Protection Agency's equivalency calculator, we estimate that this is going to be how much carbon we've reduced. But that's only if the uh, corresponding fossil fuels are not burned uh, related to what the wind or the solar is going to be. And it doesn't include uh, what was the carbon footprint of manufacturing the solar panels in China, probably with forced labor and transporting them over here and installing them? And what's the carbon footprint of eventually having to, uh, you know, decommission those panels? So by the very goal that the left has set, carbon emissions, these programs, it's unclear, at best, it's unclear that they're actually succeeding. I agree. And I agree that it's it's based off and uh, what's going on now is based off in the administration that's in charge. It is. And like a, a, like a, a religious dogma. and in the state. Yeah, but it's like a religious dogma that they have. Uh, it's, it's weird. It's like Augusta is very much these days run by religious extremists, only because the religion is leftism, progressivism, whatever you want to call it, uh, it's allowed to uh, uh, be treated like it's just, uh, you know, normal, rational, science-based arguments. Well, unfortunately, they don't make a level-headed argument. They they don't make uh, an argument for both sides. And it's a one-sided uh, government that we have here, one-sided House, one-sided Senate. Uh, and until we get back to the point where we're we're a uh, government of by and for all, you know, a lot of a lot of my colleagues don't understand that in every one of our districts, I have a Republican district. I, I won by 15 points in my district. I won by quite a bit. But there's a lot of Democrats and there's a lot of independents too. Mm-hmm. And you can't just tell someone else's opinion and disregard it. You have to take it at face value and you have to try and understand it and work with it. I get a lot of emails every single day from my district and from outside the district as well. Support this bill. Please oppose this one. Blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. I respond to every one of them and whether they're my district or not or a Republican or whoever it is just to try and engage to keep a, you know, a, a dialogue going with everyone. Unfortunately, that's not the way it is here in Augusta. It's very one-sided, said. And on, I think that uh, once 24 comes along and we can make some inroads in 24 and get back to a balanced government here in the state, 
I think that's what's going to make a big difference as to what these policies are. The emissions part of it, they're never going to come clean on that. They're never going to tell us the truth on that. You know, ever. even if they could determine what the truth is. Uh, true. You know, I mean, these are huge, complicated systems. Uh, and a volcano could erupt in the Pacific Ocean and completely alter whatever the, you know, the carbon emissions of a given year are. Um, so it's a, there's a remarkable amount of hubris associated with the idea that we can, you know, some University of Maine professor is going to come up with offshore wind turbines that are going to affect the temperatures of the entire planet. It's, it's uh, I, I don't understand why we can't just build a nuclear power plants. You know, like, I don't understand why we shut down Maine Yankee. But I, I know you got to run to uh, to get to caucus because last night uh, the uh, Democratic leaders, in a surprise move, scheduled the work session for LD 1619, which is Governor Mills late term abortion bill. Um, you know, we'll get this out before that work session starts. Um Carol Conley from the Christian Civic League of Maine, he said that the delay between the public hearing and now is because maybe Democrats are struggling to get the votes. Do you uh, do you see that or do you think that this is going to um, I I don't have a, a set feeling on that yet. I do have a feeling on how contentious of an issue this is mm. um, at the public hearing when it came up the very first day. We had a massive crowd here. We spent a lot of time uh Everybody from our Republican caucus, uh, walking the lines, talking with people. It ran so late into the night. They were, um, a lot of people we were afraid they were going to leave. We had 675 people signed up to offer testimony in opposition to it. Not very many that were uh, uh, in, uh, in favor of it. We had a, a group from one of the colleges that came. A group of girls from one of the colleges came. They were in favor of it. I know, uh, but... We tried to work as much as we could with them, bring food for them. Don't go home. Make your voice heard mm-hmm. because we were afraid that's what was going to be happening. Yeah. Later it went. Um, as far as the delay on it goes, I'm not sure I know what was scheduled for last week and then was taken off the calendar last week. We had a big event here um, with a, a lot of folks here and a, a big a, event between the um, uh, cross building and the Capitol was going on there. Um, bringing it back up this time. I don't know if they're going to cave on it. I don't think they will. I know there's a lot of pressure. Um, it's n- not like the flag issue, but kind of like the flag issue. I think there's buyer remorse going on with that issue. Mm. I think there is with the with the abortion bill as well. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think maybe uh, some people who initially signed on for it didn't realize yeah. exactly how extreme it was. How extreme it is. I mean, it is the most extreme abortion law ever. It is, and and abortion is a very difficult issue. It's difficult for a politician to sit and and have those discussions. When someone looks you in the eyes and says, what is your stance on abortion? I mean, that that issue is from here to here wide. Mm -hmm. There's so many different avenues in between. And, um, uh, and, And nobody has the exact same opinion. Two people can can feel the same way, but when they sit there and have that discussion, someone always says, "Well, I agree, but if yeah, yeah, know, but you know, or, or something like that." It happens constantly, you know. Um, and and you know, there's 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 also an instance where one politician can have diametrically opposed positions on the same issue, like Governor Mills. During the campaign, she said she would support no changes to Maine's abortion law. No. Two months later, she supports the most radical abortion law that has ever been proposed. She's taken a lot of heat for that, and uh, rightfully so. Do, what do you, you think? Said. Do you think she just updated her opinion, or do you think she lied during the I campaign? Don't, I don't know. 
I don't know. But but my opinion on on not on the issue, but of abortion, but on changing your mind on something like mm-hmm. that. My opinion is: do what you're going to say. Do what you say. Say what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. That's it. If you say it, do it. Mm-hmm. Be honest. Be real. Be true. And uh, that's how you gain support. And that's how you you um you know how you how you get your get your point across and get things done. Uh, with the abortion issue, like I said, very 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 tough. I am a pro-choice. I am. I believe in pro-choice. I believe that the issue comes up when, um, from the time that uh, a young lady feels that realizes that she's pregnant, up until the time that there's a heartbeat. I believe that that is a 100% choice. Decide what you want to do. That's up to you. Yeah, but I mean, supporting a supporting heartbeat. heartbeat. I mean, I think I think people people on the left would characterize that as a pro uh, a pro life position. Some people would. Um, I mean, the heart the heartbeat bills are something that the pro life movement has fought for. Right. Like exactly exactly what you're describing as a limit on abortion is something that's been fought for extensively in other states. It gets fought for in all pro life people. But when the time comes that there's a heartbeat involved, there needs to be more options. There needs to be more options other than either do or don't. There needs to be something in the middle of that. And I think it's, and I'm looking at a project right now, which is called Care for Life. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm looking very seriously at it. It allows another option for a young lady to have or a person to have that will allow them to um, uh, keep the baby, have the baby, work towards uh, a possible adoption scenario at the end, help pay their expenses through it, and help take the trauma away from having to make that decision. So it gives, it doesn't say, no, you, you can't have the abortion. It doesn't say you have to have one. It gives a viable option down the middle of the road that says, hold on, there's, an, there's another option here for mm-hmm. you. No, I don't want to criticize someone. I don't want to uh, uh, demean them for their life choices. We all make life choices. Mm-hmm. Some good, some bad, some ugly. That's true. That's for sure. We yeah. all do. So I think what needs to happen is from that heartbeat point, forward there needs to be another option other than do or don't we need to have a support option in the middle of that that can help that can help i I also think that the um and i mean we maybe we just opened up a can of worms here but (laughs) i think that it's 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 it kind of gets reduced to this pro-life versus pro-choice but a more helpful way i think to look at the situation is do do we as a society want more abortions or fewer abortions and if we can agree that Abortion is always uh, tragic. That it's that it's always it's not a, it's not a good thing. We don't want to be getting to this point. We would rather everybody can agree that we would rather have fewer abortions. Then it's okay. Well, how do we get there? How do we get to the point where we're having fewer abortions? Whether that's sex education, allowing or over-the-counter birth control. And I think that there are areas where conservatives don't um, compromise on that issue when it comes to contraception and, and sex education and some of those things. But more and more, it's kind of it's getting harder to agree that. We want fewer abortions. There's a radical element on the on the left, and there's some uh, like Planned Parenthood or main family planning. There are some organizations that actually make quite a bit of money, uh, even through Medicaid, by when there's more abortions. I mean, there's a reason Planned Parenthood spends so much money for Governor Mills to uh, win re-election along with uh, several uh, Democratic politicians. That's true, and and that's why I think that we need another option. I think I think that would re- reduce down. The number of abortions that are, are that are, are that there are, mm-hmm. and give um, give someone who's struggling to make a choice, struggling to make a decision about their future, about their life, 
give them an additional option. I believe that when a heart stops, a life ends. I believe that when a heart starts, a life begins. So you need to make a decision. You, you do. There needs to be another option in here somewhere. And if um, a careful life program can get going where we can offer them an alternative, then is yes, you don't have to get down that road of abortion. You don't have to change your entire life going forward. You know, if, if you're a young person, there's always exceptions to incest and rape and all the things that go on. But I think that those decisions are made before it gets to the heartbeat point, mm-hmm. you know. But um, a viable third option in the middle, which shows compassion and gives support, I think is incredibly important. So I'm going to be looking hard at that um, down the road in my political career here. Um, just to change gears real quick. How many episodes of Law and Order were you in? <laughs> a lot of people, a lot of people wouldn't know this about you, but you're, uh, you know, you had a career as a, as an actor. I did. I did. I enjoyed it very much. Uh, I started working in, um, uh, film and TV in 97. Actually, I started acting in 97 on the theater. Uh, got were into- you a theater kid in high school? Uh, no, I was. Okay. I just did it because I was looking for something to do. Okay. I was looking for something different. I like different and unique projects. I like yeah. diving in and seeing, you know, what I can make happen and what, what things are all about. Mm-hmm. I, I've done that all my life. I've had a handful of different careers and I've loved very much all of them, but I need to move on to something else after a while. And I, I took some, um, acting classes and, uh, did a production of Hamlet on a theater down in Massachusetts, down on the Cape. I did 12 productions and got hooked up with a casting agent that was casting out of Boston. And uh, in 99, I was cast on Larnoy's Special Victims Unit and the TV show Third Watch, both on NBC. And I played a New York City cop on both. Not a star character, as a bit player. Mm -hmm. I worked about every episode. Um, I did 220-some-odd episodes of SVU Law & Order, Um, six years on Third Watch, four years on Criminal Intent. Uh, over a hundred movies, had some decent parts and some big ones, War of the Worlds, Anger Management. Okay. Um, World Trade Center. Um, you know, uh, uh, The Departed. Um, oh really? You were in The Departed? I was spent five weeks on the, as a, as a, were you a cop in that as well? Uh, a, a, a Massachusetts state police officer. Uh, okay. Uh, in, uh, how was your, how's your Massachusetts plain accent? Plain clothes. <laughs> okay. Okay. I didn't get to talk. I only got to yell once. Okay. <laughs> did and, you did and, you get to meet uh, and, any and, of the stars and in get that? In a fight with Alec Baldwin. Oh, you, so that, that was that was. Well, yeah, oh, you're lucky you didn't get shot. Uh, well, no. <laughs> and he was big then. You know, when we went yeah. down, he came down right on top of me. That was he was heavy. Yeah. yeah. Stop. He also had lost to his meet mind at that. Point. Um, Matt Damon is a really good guy. I'd done four different films with him. Okay. So he was really nice. Eddie Cibrian became a, a decent good friend of mine. We played a lot of golf together. We worked together on Third Watch. He married Leanne Rhymes. Um, you know, all the guys on SVU, Mariska Hargitay, she's so, so sweet. She's so beautiful. So nice and kind. Chris Maloney played Stabler. Dan Florek, who played, uh, um, you know, Craigan, uh, Dan's a big golfer too. Ice T, Belzer. Belzer passed just a little while ago. It was, uh, he was over in France where he really liked to go to France and he was over there when he passed and it was really sad to, you know, hear of that. He was a really good guy. Loved his animals, uh, was big on rescue animals and working with, um, you know, the shelters and stuff like that. And ice is ice. Ice is just as cool as it gets. <laughs> well, he was, Mike, what's going on? You know, and come in and sit down and chat. And he was a lot of fun. And, and, um, I worked with Angelina Jolie a lot. I did four films with four projects with Martin Scorsese projects, three wow. Spielberg projects, 
War of the Worlds was probably one of my biggest films and um that I did. I had I had some uh, good stuff in and uh got to talk with Tom uh, Cruise quite a bit on that and wow. Um, so that was a lot of fun. So are we going to, are we going to see at some point, uh, Mike Soboleski running for a state senate or some higher office and all these, uh, people that you've met along your acting career coming in and cutting commercials for you? Well, if I did decide to do that, that, that would be nice. That, that is for sure. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, uh, you know, having a little star power in your, in your corners off is, is a very nice thing to have, but it's, uh, it's about messaging. Yeah. And it, it really is. Uh, moving on and moving forward is, is about messaging and, uh, you know, as I progress and as I move forward, uh, I'm going to be focusing on, 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 like I said before, in our state, there are three parties. There are a lot of people in, in independents, uh, Democrats and Republicans and just working with everyone and working in the middle. One thing a lot of people don't realize about the 24 election coming up, this will be the first time independents will have a vote in the primaries. So, an, oh, yeah. An independent will be able to go into the polls, pick a ballot, Either a Republican or a Democrat. They won't be able to go Republican for president, Democrat for, you know, Senate and. Yeah. Well, oh, now we've got, we've got open, an open, a traditional open primary. Right. Yeah. Pick one ballot and they'll be able to go that way. So this is, 24 is going to be a big election for all of us. It'll be a big election for the balance of power in the state. Uh, we've got a lot of, um, well-respected, um, senators and, um, and representatives who'll be terming out who won't be with us anymore. Uh, unfortunately, we'll be losing Heidi Sampson, mm-hmm. who's on Education Committee, and Heidi's just phenomenal. Jeff Timberlake will be going. Uh, it'll be sad to see him go. He was president, uh, he was a leader in the minority in the Senate in the last term. He gave that up this term. Uh, but we've got a lot of our stalwarts that'll be going, and uh, so we need to step up and make sure we make some inputs in 24. Well, Mike, I appreciate you doing this with me. I'll let you get over to the State House. I know you guys got business to get to, but thank you, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Next time we do this, we're going to have to talk about your uh, days DJing at clubs. (laughs) Now you're going back to the 80s. (laughs) And we can get into uh, uh, the uh, environmental justice bill. We can get into the ratio bill. I mean, there's a number of different things. um, uh, The paid family leave as well. Paid family leave is just going to be a killer for business in our state. Uh, And um, so there's a lot of issues to talk to. But thank you so much for having me uh, in today. It's been a pleasure. All right. Thanks, Mike.